0: Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. We have another issues episode this week. For today's episode, we're talking about a topic that has come up a number of times since we did our data center call-in show. The question is, what do I do with my overbuilt data center? So what has been happening over and over again is that companies in the 90s and aughts started to move into an all-digital strategy. And at the time, they thought that the only way to do that was to build their own actual enterprise data centers. Now, when you build a data center, you tend to build it with some room to grow. Like, I have 200kW of IT equipment today, but who knows, in 10 years, I might have 500kW. And I don't want to have to build another data center in 5 or 10 years. So what companies did was they built the data center to accommodate that 500kW. And for a while, that made sense, especially in the 90s. At the time, co-location, that's putting equipment in a shared facility like Equinix or Digital Realty or or others, Um, co-location wasn't very popular with a lot of companies. It was a lot more expensive than it is today. And a lot of the IT managers and CIOs saw that they could save money by bringing the data centers into their own facilities. Now, technology got bigger and bigger, and, you know, from the 90s into the aughts, it culminated somewhere around, I think, 2008 or 2010 with these large enterprise data centers that held big, hunkin' sands and acres of servers. But by then, virtualization storage consolidation, and cloud storage had all begun to infiltrate. After that moment, data centers, almost in unison, began to shrink, to pull into themselves and get smaller and smaller. So what we had was, instead of 200kW growing into 500kW, we had 200kW shrinking into 150kW. So you had data centers served by infrastructure designed for Like over three times the current load. And in reality, since then, there's been even more consolidation and more companies saying to themselves, I don't want to be in the data center business anymore. Well, on today's show, we are going to investigate that phenomenon. We're going to look into why data centers shrank, and what companies are doing with that extra space, power, and cooling. Also, we're going to look at what to do in the future to avoid being stuck with a bill for that entire data center that you're not actually using. Let's go. So here's a news flash from back in 2015. The exponential growth of data and the resulting demand for storage continues to grow. There are many companies who have built data centers which are no longer deemed efficient enough to handle sufficient traffic and virtualization makes equipment out of date. that came from Mark Burden and SB Home Run back in 2015. It really is an interesting change that's happened in the marketplace. Storage has gotten smaller. Servers have gotten smaller. Honestly, we're looking at legitimate 18kW racks these days. Oh, I think that's still pretty rare. But the fact is that you can fit in one rack what you used to take 500 square feet less than 10 years ago. And this has always been the case, right? I mean, there have been trends like this ever since Gordon Moore first said that uh, compute density would double every year, and he said that in the 60s. But most enterprises haven't really needed to run more applications in the last few years. I mean, they, they've they run more, but like the BI infrastructure has been treating them pretty well and hasn't really needed a huge increase in compute storage, but... the the compute hasn't grown to keep pace with Moore's Law. Uh, Likewise, office applications and databases and all that traditional back-end info hasn't really grown in compute as much as Moore's Law. So then VMware came, and uh, suddenly you could put 10 virtual servers in a single physical server, And this isn't gonna stop either. Cloud adoption happened right alongside with the adoption of virtualization. So did software as a service. So did Kubernetes and Docker. It makes less sense than ever to host your own data center. So data centers are consolidating, that makes sense. So we're going to look at seven questions regarding what to do about your downsizing data center. Okay, here they are, firstly. How do I determine where my applications and workloads should go? Should they go on-premise, colo, public cloud, private cloud, or hybrid? Second, like, really, what do I keep in my data center? Do I even need a data center? Question three, how do I operate my data center more efficiently now that I've downsized? Question four, how much money will I save by downsizing? And question five, how do I maintain reliability as I downsize? And on to question six, how do I reclaim the floor space from my old data center? And lastly, what do I do with my old data center since we sank a ton of money into it and it was really well-built and I like it? All right, let's get into the questions.
1: How do I determine where my applications and workloads should go? Should they go on-premise, colo, public cloud? Private, cloud, or hybrid?
0: Okay, I I said in our previous call-in show that this is the question of the hour and I'm still looking for the best tools. I think that there are some great tools out there for figuring out where to put applications. Of course, the the first question is what works where? So some, some applications don't really work in a cloud, some don't really work in... Uh, like a Docker format, it just depends on on what you're trying to do. But after those IT questions are resolved, and you know what can be put in public cloud, private cloud, and you know what the logistical hurdles are, as well as the corporate governance hurdles. Like, are, are there? Does it need to be HIPAA compliant? Does it need to be uh, PCI compliant? If you figured all that out, there are some tools that help to determine the cost, relative cost, of putting a given workload or application in a given type of premises. Uh, Two of the very good tools that I've seen are called Aptio and CXO Nexus. And what they do is they get all the contracts that you have out of your accounts payable and BI systems. And they run some AI or algorithms through it to figure out, okay, what are you buying with all this payment? They break those payments down and and figure out what is going to cloud, what is going to on-premise, what is going to your Cisco licenses, what is going to your warranties. And once you have all that information, you can start to them into groups so that okay this is the stuff that has to run on the cloud this is stuff that actually we could save a little bit of money if we went to a SaaS model and here's some things that uh we could actually we're, we're paying more than the market rate right now more than our competitors so once you start to break it down in that way where you're really seeing what you're spending and in what context, you can start to say, okay, actually that might be cheaper to run in our on-premise data center or in colo. Or more likely that you'll say, why are we running that on-premise? We could put that in a SaaS application and save a ton of money. So to make those comparisons, what you have to do is really figure out what it costs to run your own data center. And that's probably the hardest part because you can just look at your contract for your colo and you can just look at your contract for your cloud services. You know, here's what I'm paying Azure. Here's what I'm paying AWS. But for your own on-premise data center, you have to look at how much are you paying for energy? How much are you paying for service contracts in your equipment? How much are you paying for the local personnel that you have to have running the data center? And put all those factors into one place. And that takes looking at your energy bills. It takes looking at your personnel spend and thinking about, well, if I didn't have my data center here, would we still have these employees? Maybe you would. So it's a much bigger question than just looking at the cost of being in colo. And I'll say the cost of being in colo is actually more complicated than most people give it because generally colo these days is billed based on the amount of energy used and that energy is often calculated on a per rack basis or per circuit basis so let's say you have a 30 amp single phase 208 circuit then you're, you're talking about about 5kw of available power and let's say you're only using 2kw of that available power Well, you're still getting charged for the availability of that 5kW. So it takes an awareness of what your energy use is on a per rack level. And a lot of times colos don't really want to give you that information for the very reason we just said. Because if you optimized for your circuit usage, then you would be saving money and putting less in their pockets so they'll sometimes the the good colos will not let you use more than a eighty percent of the rated load of the breaker and they'll you they'll add side a and side b together to make sure that you're basically using forty percent on each side on average, so that when if one side were to fail, it would go to the other side. Because it's really easy to actually overuse your circuit and pop your breaker if there is a failure of the A or B side. So this is a reliability issue too. So it all kind of goes back as well to working with dev and making sure that they are able to dictate where some of that stuff goes. There have been a lot of companies that the CIO said, oh, we're going all cloud. And what happened was they, they ended up eating their hats and paying a lot of money uh, and and wasting a lot of money often because their data ingress and egress went out the roof on cloud and they didn't realize that that was going to happen. But also let's say dev, the dev team has a physical server that for whatever reason they need access to all the time. Let's say it's some fancy GPU rig that's used for modeling and They don't want to put that in a cloud. They really want it to be on-premise. Well, in that case, you don't want to take that away from them because it's their baby, and, and maybe it is cheaper. Maybe they're doing something that will revolutionize your company and really make a difference. So that will come from the dev team. That won't come from up on high. Also, if latency is a concern... You might put that on premises. Uh, I think of that mostly in terms of virtual desktops. Uh, that, if you if you're going to have people on site using server using desktops that are located in the data center, you want them to have a constant uptime, and they'll get really upset if they don't have that. So, it makes a lot of sense to put that on site although these days it's gotten a lot better desktop as a service has gotten has improved remarkably especially if you have very good connectivity also if you want to put something on premises if you have a specific need or or in any place let's say that you need PCI compliance for a given application you're actually processing transactions well in that case you're gonna need to have compliance and certification. And unless you paid an arm and a leg, you probably don't have that on site. So it might actually be cheaper to go to Colo because then you don't have to keep up all the audits and certifications for that. And it could actually save you a lot of money. And this gets us into (laughs) our next question.
1: Like, really, what do I keep in my data center?
0: you don't really need to have an on-premises data center except for the basic networking and routing functions. And usually that would be a main distribution frame or MDF room. So that would be your main networking room. And maybe you have two of those to be truly fault tolerant so that let's say you have one MDF on, on one side of the building and another on the other side and you actually treat your workers as if they are the data center, and you have highly fault-tolerant networking within your building. Because if you're moving all of your workloads off-site, then the the IDF and MDF infrastructure becomes way more important, and you have to make sure it's much more reliable because then everything becomes pipe dependent. Everything depends on the network itself. You also have to have super high quality ISPs and your LAN and WAN and SD-WAN has to be perfect. So redundant firewalls, redundant ISPs, maybe BGP or SD-WAN for everything that you're doing so that you have maximum uptime even at your office space it makes a lot of sense in that case because let's say you're using desktop as a service and it's in a cloud and it's not on-premises if your internet goes down then all work stops in a lot of companies if your internet goes down but they still have desktops or you know something on their desk work doesn't stop, they can still do something. It's just they don't have email. But in this case, you're up a creek. There's absolutely zero productivity. So there are some things that you might want to have in your data center, like we said before. But it is no longer a requirement at all. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this message on good data. The show is brought to you today by GreenLane Design. GreenLane has been a consultant to large data center operators for years. They've provided long-term cost modeling for IT master planning, totaling in the nine-figure range. For help comparing the cost of cloud co-location on-prem and hybrid, visit greenlanedesign.com and mention the podcast. Welcome back. Next question.
1: How do I operate my data center more efficiently now that I've downsized?
0: Okay, so this is one that I think is kind of hilarious because... So many data centers were built to grow, but not to shrink. It would have been possible for most initial designs to say, oh, well, we're 200 well, we're, we're kW now. Let's build so that we could reduce to 100 kW or grow to 400 kW. So you have increments of 100 kW that can scale either direction. But most people said, oh, well, we have 200 kW now, let's scale to 400 or 600 and only scale up. And I think that's been a real mistake. Over time, people overbuilt data centers. That means that you have to have your whole head front-end infrastructure full-sized so that your switchgear electrically has to be able to support that 600 kW. And your cooling system needs to be able to support that 600kW if you have a chill water system. So that makes this huge overhead in terms of the efficiency. Let's say you have chillers, one, one big chiller, or I guess two big chillers, redundant, to support all of your cooling If one of those chillers goes down, you have to have the redundant. So it's not like you can turn anything off. You're stuck at that size. You're stuck at the pump size. You're stuck at the pipe size. Even though you're using a fraction, there's no ability to modularize. So what I suggest is that if you're downsizing, you can lean on your building management system to push all the VFDs, all the infrastructure as low as it can go, and lead lag your crack units, lead lag as much as possible so you're not using that energy. And let's say, for instance, that you were designed your your design capacity for your data center is uh, one megawatt, and you're using 150 kW. Well, you could maybe turn off your chilled water system and have some DX cracks that uh, are are on the lead units, and then your standby is the chilled water system. Actually, that's not a good example because I hate starting up chilled water. Um you, you can find some way to maintain your redundancy while still shrinking your footprint. It it might make sense to install new equipment and or to de-energize 50% of your cooling and use the DX system for redundancy so that you're not running two chillers all the time at the same time you can just shrink your footprint put everything in the same spot so that your delta T is higher your uh, change in temperature over the server and over your cooling coils So that if you're getting really hot air back to your cooling units, they're going to run more efficiently. So the more that you put all your racks together in one spot and put it right next to your air conditioning system, the more that that air conditioning system is going to run effectively. Because otherwise, you're going to spread it out over the entire data center floor and your heat is just going to sit idle in the room. And weirdly, actually, that can actually be more efficient in some ways because it will dissipate through the walls and ceilings. And uh, if you are capturing the hottest air, depending on your system, that actually might work fine. <laughs> so what all this comes down to is hire an engineer and figure it out because <laughs> it's complicated. But uh, you can you can run CFD. You can uh, put in blanking panels and containment for uh, HVAC you can, uh, uh, it's tough on the electrical side because you're probably not going to rip out your electrical equipment and put in new because that would have downtime. But if you have the option to reduce the size of your transformers, there is a savings at having a smaller transformer if you're using such a small amount. So think about it. It's complicated, but there are usually some means of operating more efficiently. Next question.
1: How much money will I save by downsizing?
0: So you can save real money by downsizing because yeah, like we said in the previous question, you're making your data center more efficient, which then saves energy. But also, you if you can get rid of any of the equipment in your data center, you're saving on the contracts. You're saving on the maintenance contracts. Uh, you're saving on the warranties. You don't have to pay the warranty from year to year on that given system. You're saving money on your staff because you don't have to have staff on hand to work with that equipment. And that staff, as much as I want to keep people's jobs, that the data center itself requires staff or else you're not running your data center properly, which is what I usually see. I usually see that their data centers are just understaffed. So all those people often are IT folks that really have another job and they're distracted by data center stuff so it makes so little sense to mismanage your data center on site (laughs) um also you know you're, you're paying for that space that is going to the data center whether you like it or not your rent if you lease your building is going to that space. And you could be putting bodies there. You, you could be using it as office space or storage. Let's say you you just decide, oh, this this space actually would be great for uh, warehousing. It could be. If you're, if you're running out of warehousing space, then data center space is fairly similar to warehouse space or high-end warehouse space. The one issue is that if you have cardboard or particulates, you want to make sure that you segregate the air from the warehouse section of the room to the data center section of the room because you want to keep that data center section clean. And just having cardboard in a data center is just, it's just bad. Just Cardboard creates dust. If it's opened, uh, it's really having... Anything apart from servers and racks is is really something you don't want to have any contact with the data center if you can help it. But if you create that partition, you make sure that you have a clean air segregation between the two spaces, then you're using your existing infrastructure to the highest level, and it's worth it. All right, next question.
1: How do I maintain reliability as I downsize?
0: This is one of those things that is very well understood, I think, but people still need to hear it. When you want to do work in a data center, it is always a risk. It would be fantastic if we could set and forget every single thing that we ever put in a data center. That would be ideal, but we can't do that. We have to do work on live equipment at some point. So what do you do in that situation? You write up a method of procedure. You make sure that there is a written document that shows the stakeholders involved and make sure that they all sign off on that document. You make sure that for every service-affecting piece of work that you're doing that there is a plan for zero downtime and that there's a contingency plan and that the work is done off hours and that the work is documented to within an inch of its life so that it's the work has already been run through in everybody's head before the work is actually done. And the contingencies have been worked out before anything is actually completed. And some of those contingencies are things like temporary units so that you bring in temporary cooling or sometimes a temporary UPS or a temporary generator. Um, temporary ATS switches, they they happen. Um, actually, I don't see temp ATS switches because that tends to be the part <laughs> that is the linchpin of everything and often as a single point of failure. Um, the other thing is you have to be 100% sure that you have followed the best practices in redundancy at the rack level. Let's say you had to shut down the A side or the B side of your electrical distribution. Well, in that case, you are going to possibly shut down some equipment. So you have to be confident that everybody has plugged every server into the A side and the B side, that any single corded equipment is going to come back quickly or that it has some sort of redundancy on it. It can be difficult to do that, and it's actually very rare that everything is done that way in an enterprise setting, but it's possible. Another thing is that uh, during work, temporary barriers have to be erected, smoke alarms have to be turned off, fire watch has to be instituted, and any welding has to be ventilated, any dust and particulates have to be uh, filtered. And, you know, the best way to ensure all that's going to happen is to hire fantastic contractors and be very confident in the people that you're working with. If you hire the right contractor, they'll do all that stuff. They know better, they won't have any problem with it. But, if you hire some cheapo fly-by-night contractor, if it's not written in the specs, they're not gonna do it. So, hopefully it's written in the specs, but... Oh, and also, hire an engineer. (laughs) It's pretty important. I I will advocate for that till the day I die. So many people do work without hiring an engineer, Uh, If you have an on-site engineer, great, but there are wonderful engineers out there who can figure this stuff out and who are not stuffy and will work with you and will do intelligent things to make sure that you have zero downtime and will stick their license on the line to make sure that they're doing the right thing for you. So find the right contractors, find the right engineers, and have faith in it.
1: How do I reclaim the floor space from my old data center?
0: So, we got into this a little bit, but what could you do with your old data center? Storage is great. Office space. There have been a lot of office spaces that I've seen that have been what was data center expansion space. And, you know, you just put carpet tiles on top of your raised floor and you're done. It works. People are happy with it. You can even use that. Uh, that underfloor plenum as an air plenum for comfort cooling. It works. Uh, it actually works really well. You can have, uh, you know, Tate makes diffusers that, that people can change at their desk, which is actually a lead item so that you can just make people more comfortable in their space uh, with a raised floor. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a viable option. And at least then you're using your space, your full space, and not wasting it. Uh, and, you know, I think the best option is to, from the beginning when you're building out your building, to build the data center with the idea that it might grow or shrink And there should be a plan for that. That it's possible that this data center is going to be 5,000 square feet. There's a possibility it might be 20,000 square feet. And you're starting at 7,000 square feet. So it could go up or down. Be patient. Pay attention. And you can find creative ways to take care of that. Next question.
1: What do I do with my old data center since we sink a ton of money into it and it was built really well?
0: Okay, this is a funny one because I feel like there are a lot of data center operators out there that are sentimental about their data centers. They were there when they were being built and they put a lot of effort into ensuring that they had maximum uptime and somehow, some way over the past few Fifteen years they've been able to have zero downtime at this site and they're proud of that so if you have a fantastic data center you have the option to do a sale leaseback where you approach a co-location provider and you say hey take a tour of my data center And it's actually a growing trend, or I don't know if it's growing, but it is a trend where there have been a number of uh, sale leasebacks where you keep your IT infrastructure in the, in the space, but you sell the building to a co-location provider. And it's almost like you give them the reins you can even have them hire your staff and so there's a continuity there and you just lease back the space that you need and say that they can have the rest to sell to other customers and suddenly your enterprise data center becomes a co-location data center and you can save all of that expense any capital expense is gone and then the space is being used to the utmost of its capacity and that's more efficient so it helps everybody not every co-location provider is going to do a perfect job uh... but there are some fantastic co-location providers that could probably run your site better than you're running it now it's a very viable option can save a lot of money and you almost don't have to make any changes to your business. So that's one option. You could also just sell it and move out. And then it becomes a commercial real estate play, and you don't have to worry about the additional contract negotiation of the lease back and how that's going to become a co deal, but that works too. And you could also just do a slow migration out that if you have some way to maintain business continuity and use your data center properly while you move into the cloud, move into hybrid, you know, maybe it's worth staying in your own data center. And... You know, there, there are some businesses, really high-end guys, that may operate their data centers better than anybody else. There are some fantastic data center operators out there, banks, some investment companies, not all. Gosh darn, there are some bad data center operators investment companies uh, that I've seen. But um, yeah, there's... There's no necessary reason to get out of your data center. Do the math. Be sure. And the last option really is just to liquidate, to demolish the building, sell off the equipment. Demolish the building, sell off the equipment, get out of there, get it done. It can work out. You make a little bit of money. Some of that equipment still retains its value. Generators are still worth something after 20 years. Not as much, but something. Switch gear, still worth money. There are options for liquidation that are worth something. So, think about it. All right, that's our show. I hope that this rant of mine is helpful for somebody out there. I think this is such a pressing issue right now, and it's something that is very difficult to do properly. And I see it happening so much that I can't help but say something about it. So I'll be happy to answer any questions about this topic. You can email gooddatapodcast at gmail.com, and you could go to our website and leave a comment. Or you can contact me on LinkedIn I'm available so there's a lot to talk about here and uh, I just think this is going to continue to be a topic and has been a topic for a long time but it's going to continue to be a topic for a while because there are still millions of data centers out there and not only are they consolidating but what's left the little data centers that are left behind by cloud and colo and all these changes, they still have to be fantastic. There's no such thing as a throwaway server closet anymore. Those networking closets in your building have become mission critical, and they need to have absolutely impeccable uptime these days. So think about it. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Green Lane Design. They have been with us from the beginning, and they do very good work. So check them out, GreenLaneDesign.com. As always, my name is Drew Farnsworth for Good Data. We'll see you next time on the podcast.